Before we started recording, Deanna and I realized that our the people we chose for the next two episodes are born a year and some handful of days apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the differences are. I'm super excited. I'm really wondering if they're like a very similar um, ilk. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to rule your list, take your shoulders, take your gifts, and let a lady confess I wanna be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Also, who I wanted to do for half a sec was Dolly Parton, who was born in '46, as well. Oh shit! Dolly was born in '46. All right. Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't do yep. Dolly, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> well, so here's the reason why I opted not to do Dolly Parton for everybody, because everybody should find out about Dolly Parton. Her career is prolific. She's a fucking musical genius. She is a, like a philanthropist and is really quiet about it. But like, I'm sure everybody saw the news where she invested millions of dollars in one of the COVID vaccines. Um, she is she supports Black Lives Matter. She in the 80s, as early as the 80s, was giving money to HIV AIDS research and awareness. And she's just her whole philosophy is like love people and be kind. And she's pretty apolitical most of the time, but I think it's pretty obvious where her leanings lie. Yeah. And she wrote Jolene and I will always love you on the same day, according to legend. So I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. And those songs are so good. Mm-hmm. I love Jolene. That's That really is one of my favorite songs. It's a really fucking great song. It's such a and good she's, song. she's like unabashed about her, her plastic surgery, which, of course, I have a lot of mixed feelings about like extreme plastic surgery and, and those types of standards for women, especially, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But her sort of lack of shame about it is refreshing and sort of like it takes a lot of money to look this cheap like people say she looks cheap (laughs) and her taste is cheap but she she's unapologetic about what she chooses to look like and and i respect that she likes what she likes exactly and we should support that a hundred percent yeah. And, you know, if you hadn't already guessed, you're listening to a podcast about women. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't listen to this podcast on the reg, we are called Good Witches, Bad Bitches. We are. I'm Hannah. I'm Deanna. That's Deanna. <laughs> and, yeah, we've, we very casually talk about ladies and feminine folks um, throughout history, and that's what we do here. So thank you very much for being along for the ride. It's much appreciated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We just had Thanksgiving. Yep. So we're in a thankful yes, we mood again. We are. And actually, before we dive into your person, do you mind if I read you some of the amazing comments that we got um, over social media? No. After and like around Thanksgiving? No. Because um, they were just so sweet. And this do one I is mind? on our Instagram. <laughs> this this one's public, public, so you can guys see it. You guys can see it on our Instagram if you want, but... Um, Fractal Rachel commented, I'm currently listening to your most recent episode, and I just want to say how much I appreciate this podcast and love listening to it. I've been following it for well over two years now, and I'm so, so, so stoked on it and glad to have found it. It continuously blows my mind. 
I tend to especially like listening to it on Thanksgiving, and I think this is the second or third Thanksgiving where I've specifically sought out this podcast. So I'm developing something of a tradition here. (laughs) Run-on sentences abound. (laughs) Uh, TLDR, too long didn't read. I really appreciate this podcast, and y'all as individuals, thank you. I know. It just, like, ugh. It, it's so sweet and it wasn't the only message we got on Thanksgiving so <laughs> I got permission from Brie to read hers she DM'd us she said just listen to your November episode thank you all so much for being here I've been listening since you started and you've definitely been medicine for my soul since President Orange has been in office you've taught me so much and you've also helped me get through so many home improvement projects I can't even tell you love you and thank you <laughs> What? Why are our listeners so nice? Uh, They are truly the best. I think that's, you know, it's one of the funny things about doing this podcast is like, we don't have a bajillion reviews on iTunes. We don't have a million subscribers on various platforms, but we have people who reach out to us personally and tell us how meaningful and important this podcast is for them. And we, we have that often enough that it's I I don't know it just feels more personal yeah and you guys are just like so compassionate and and passionate so thank you guys for your comment and your message it was what we needed on Thanksgiving absolutely makes me feel it makes me happy weird inside in a good way Where I'm like, a little bit tingly. Mm, because compliments are really hard for me, but I feel so grateful. and I. <laughs> but with that, who do you want to tell me about this week? Okay. Get ready, because she's actually been on my uh, list for quite some time. And okay. I weirdly have a personal connection that's that I did not <laughs> okay. exactly realize until I started doing more research on her and was like, uh, oh, oh. She like oh. a fifth cousin twice removed? No, I wish. Um, <laughs> so my sources this week are Wikipedia, womenshistory.org, a piece by Ray Tyler, and time.com, a piece by Adrian Keene. Um, right. And I'm going to talk to you today about Wilma Mankiller. Oh, shit. I almost, I almost did her. Mm-hmm. Well, good, because she's been on my list for a long time. (laughs) This is actually so perfect because I think you're going to give context for my person. Oh, shit. Next week that will be super, super helpful. So. Well. Get in it. All right. In case uh, people have never heard of Wilma Mankiller before, um, in 1985, she paved the way for female leadership in America when she became the first woman to be principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, which uh, is the largest tribe in the U.S., and it is a role that she held for a decade, ushering in an era of prosperity, cultural revitalization, and self-governance for the Cherokee people. Amazing. And she's one of those people that's going to inspire you, but also drive you crazy in the sense of like, what the (laughs) fuck am I even doing with my life? And I feel like I'm struggling to get anything accomplished and I have zero problems compared to the Uh, things that she, you know, accomplished in the face of adversity. One of those. One of those. All right. (laughs) So. I'm here for it. Let's do it. She was born 
On November 18, 1945, in the Hastings Indian Hospital in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and I'm going to use the term Indian a few times, just like a heads up, because that was the term at the time that was used. I'm also going to say Native and Indigenous when it's my editorialization, but cool. just so we're clear. She was born there. Um, Her mom was Clara Irene Mankiller, born Sutton. And her father was Charlie Mankiller. Uh, Her dad was a full-blooded Cherokee, and his ancestors had been forced to relocate to uh, Oklahoma from Tennessee by way of the Trail of Tears in the 1830s, which is a really fun time and and full of really depressing things (laughs) that we won't necessarily delve into here because that might be a story for another time what is what is it just for like barest context it was a forced relocation of many indigenous peoples in this country to lands that were not the lands that they were from uh it was based it was done by andrew jackson who was a piece of shit president and he hated native americans and just wanted to control them and get them away and it was um horrible they had to walk and uh they like a lot of Native Americans died on the way out, and it was yep. uh, pretty atrocious, all in all. Cool. Thank you mm-hmm. for that. <laughs> <laughs> so her mom was Scotch-Irish and English, so her mom was really white, and her they were immigrants who settled in Virginia and North Carolina in the 1700s. For clarity, the surname Mankiller, which, and forgive pronunciation as always i tried to look it up and i couldn't find anything concrete as gaia dihi uh, in the cherokee language refers to a traditional cherokee military rank so that's what man killer means ah. it's like major ah. or captain um or a shaman oh cool with the ability to okay. avenge wrongs through spiritual methods Ooh. and her given cherokee name which meant flower was aji luzgi aji luzgi Something close to that. Okay. <laughs> she was the sixth of 11 children. Ugh. People popped out so many babies <gasps> in the 40s. I just am constantly surprised. Ugh. It's like my, mean... my grandpa was one of 10. And it's just like, what? what? Oh, my God. So, I can't even. Yeah. can't even imagine. So she obviously had five older siblings. There's uh, Don, Frida Marie, Robert Charles, Francis Kay, and John David. And in 1948, when she was three, her family moved into a house built by her father, her uncle, and her brother on her grandfather's land allotment. Her other five siblings, Linda Jean, Richard, Vanessa Lou, James Ray, and William Edward, were born over the next 12 years. Oh, my God. So that's a lot of people in a little house that was built by your dad and your uncle and your brother. Um, The house had no electricity or plumbing. And they lived in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty to this day is still incredibly common on Native reservation lands. So the family basically fended for themselves. They hunted. They fished. They had a vegetable garden. That's how they ate. Um, They also grew peanuts and strawberries, which they sold. And uh, Wilma went to school through the fifth grade in a three-room schoolhouse. Ugh. Yeah. And this was like the the fifties ish, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, family spoke both English and Cherokee at home. Even her mother learned to speak Cherokee, so they spoke it at home. All right. Yeah, her mother would uh, can food and use flour sacks to make clothes for the children. Wow. 
And it was really important to her to immerse her kids in uh, their Cherokee heritage. Like that was something that was really significant to her to do for them, which I think is a big deal for the time. In the 50s, yeah. Being a, a white woman who grew up in a white family, I assume. You would to assume. be like, hey, you know, yeah. <laughs> I want all of my children to understand their heritage, which even now is reviled and treated like shit by our government and the people here. Mm-hmm. Um, they went to a Baptist church, but apparently were always wary of white congregants and customs preferring to attend tribal ceremonial gatherings where family elders would teach the children traditional Cherokee stories. Um, oh, wait. So they went to church. Yep. But. But didn't, they... they didn't trust white people. <laughs> so why did they go? They just went to kind of be like, yes, we're here. We're having, we're, it's an appearance or. I mean, I think it's, it's just probably indicative of how uh, prolific Christianity was and is. And it just was like expected. Mm. Right. In 1955, there was a severe drought, which obviously made hunting, gardening, caring for yourself uh, really hard. So yeah. there was something called the Indian Relocation Act of 1956 that the U.S. government um put into action which provided assistance quote unquote to relocate native families to urban areas some of the the sources i looked at seemed like it was kind of a forced relocation and some were kind of like well they were struggling so they seized an opportunity to try and start over again somewhere else I think it's it's six of one, half dozen the other, because if they were starving and in a drought and the government's like, hey, we'll get you an apartment in a big city so where you can find more work. And then we'll take your land off your hands. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. Of course. <laughs> so when she was 11, uh, they moved to San Francisco because uh, her mother's family, her mother's mother lived in Riverbank. And apparently her father was denied a loan before that time, which is what really sealed the deal on we're moving to a city with this. Um, so they sold all their belongings and they took a train from Oklahoma to San Francisco. And though they were promised an apartment in the city, there were no apartments available, apparently, when the whole family oh. arrived. Big family, remember. Um, so they were housed in like a really shitty squalid hotel for several weeks before they even had a place to live. Oh, fuck. Yeah, but of course, and it was the it was the Indian Relocation Program that housed them in this Indian hotel? Relocation Act. Yeah, I think so. Act. Mm-hmm. Oh God. But of course, they struggled financially. Still, um, I know San Francisco yeah. today is one of the most expensive, the most expensive city in Ugh. the country, um, and I can't imagine it, it. City living is more expensive than than country living anyway. So even if yeah. you do get a job, it that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And one of the hardest things, I would think, was the fact that they had so few indigenous neighbors. So they were feeling very alienated from their tribal identity and their tribal heritage because they were now separated right. even from the land that they were forced to make a new home on after the Trail of Tears happened. 
She also apparently really struggled in school because uh, a lot of students, kids or assholes made fun of her last name and the way that she dressed and the way that she spoke because she probably came from Oklahoma. Uh, That's I would think. And the fact that she spoke more than one language and that's like, ooh, (laughs) kids will find anything to make fun of. It's insane. Um, Yes, they will. So she like ran away from home a lot it seems like and would always go to her grandma's house <laughs> and her grandma would make Aww. her go home but there was like a certain uh point in time where they they had ended up in like a really really bad neighborhood where there was lots of you know um crime and a lot of gang activity and uh so when she ran away there was one time that they were like fine you can live with your grandma for a year it's fine just go live with your grandma um but um so sad yeah but that year away was really good for her confidence and her like um yeah her confidence that's the probably the best word i can think um and uh when she came back um she started to become involved in the activities of the san francisco indian center which was there in san francisco uh but she still remained indifferent to school she struggled in school, um, but she ended up graduating from high school in 1963. Um, and as soon as she finished school, she got a clerical job at a finance company. She moved in with her sister. And that summer, she was at a Latin dance and she met a man named Hector Hugo Olaya de Bardi. He was an Ecuadorian college student from a well-to-do family, and they started dating. Uh, Wilma found him sophisticated Hector. and her parents really didn't approve of the union, but they got married in Reno uh, in 1963 and then honeymooned okay. in Chicago. Uh, but they came back to California, moved into an apartment in the Mission District. Uh, they had her fir- their first daughter, Felicia. Then they moved to a house in a nearby neighborhood. They had their second daughter, Gina. And Hector continued his schooling um, at San Francisco State University and worked for Pan American Airlines and Wilma was expected to stay home and raise their kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Hector really viewed his role as the family's provider and she was supposed to be the one at home doing domestic stuff. Uh, but she... Where did you say he was from? Ecuador. Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Very maybe traditional. Yes. And different from... I mean, patriarchy really infused itself in a lot of indigenous cultures, but Cherokee culture was matrilineal and matriarchal before patriarchy took over. So she had some sort of sense of idea that, like, she should be doing more, I think. Um, Interesting. She became restless and she decided to go back to school, even though she was never really a big fan of school. But she started taking classes at a junior college but found it was really refreshing because for the first time she could take classes that interested her instead of being forced to take things that she didn't have any interest in. So she started enjoying school yep. for the first time. Um, yep. Welcome to college. <laughs> I know, right? Except for those core classes. Carcio. Um, Fuck the core classes. But like, yeah, discovering what you what you really like and what really makes sense to you is a big deal at yes. that time in your life. Yes. And speaking of which... In addition to being in school, in 1969, there was a dramatic event that kind of changed the trajectory of her life and made her realize what she kind of wanted to dedicate herself to, which was... The moon landing? Yeah, of course. No, it was was the Native American students who 
gained control of Alcatraz. They like occupied Alcatraz in San Francisco's harbor. And that occupation gained national media attention and basically awakened, you know, this young mother to the issues affecting other native people in the United States. And so while she became very determined to get involved in this sort of activist community, her husband did not like it at all because he just wanted her to stay home and be a happy little wife. Well, and the people who, who this, especially like it was a lot of college students, yes. right, mm-hmm. who, who occupied Alcatraz, but like people saw that as an extremely radical yeah. event, like super radical. It was. And it was nonviolent uh, and it was, it was the exact type of form of protest you would, I think, want. But it was effective. Yeah. Yeah. It, it Yeah. It's interesting. I went to Alcatraz with a friend um, a couple of years ago to visit, and that was the first time I had ever heard about the um, occupation of Alcatraz mm-hmm. and what it was about and all of that. And I, su- I assume you're going to talk about some of that stuff. A little like, bit. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. Like, those are things we didn't learn about in school, or at least I didn't learn about I in school. I definitely didn't learn about it in school. And and I, I love... Um, I just love what they were trying to do with it. I'll let you dive more into whatever you I mean, I think your notes about it. But yeah, you probably will have more. I've had to like kind of pare down a lot of deep dives into things um, for the sake of time. But um, basically, it was a catalyst for her and it kind of changed her attitude about what she wanted to do. She said quote, when Alcatraz occurred, I became aware of what needed to be done to let the rest of the world know that Indians had rights too. And it was basically her like benchmark into a conversion to full-time activism. Like she wanted to be an activist. That's what she wanted to dedicate her life to. Um, So she became very active in groups supporting the occupation. She did visit Alcatraz, but she wasn't one of the people occupying. She spent her time focused on um, fundraising and support, like gathering supplies, blankets, food, water for the people who were participating in the occupation. Um, not long after the occupation began, her father, Charlie Mankiller, was diagnosed with kidney disease, which oh. ended up making her discover that she too had polycystic kidney disease. Oh, something she shared with her father. So, but in between her activism school and being a mom and a wife, she spent as much time with her father as she was able. Um, The occupation lasted 19 months. I didn't Mm -hmm. realize it was that long. And during that time, Wilma learned all the organizational skills that she was going to need for the future. And she also learned how to do paralegal research, things within the law. So, she had been encouraged by other activists at this time to continue her studies and begin planning a career with a like an eye toward activism. Yeah. Yeah. So her father, her father passed away in 1971 um, and they took him back to Oklahoma to bury him. Um, She came back to California, transferred to San Francisco state and began to focus her classes on social welfare Um, against her husband's wishes. She bought her own car and started to kind of seek her own independence. She would take her daughters to Native American events along the West Coast. Um, 
In her travels, she met members of the Pitt River Tribe in Northern California, and she joined their campaign for compensation uh, for lands illegally taken from the tribe during the California Gold Rush. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, shit, because that, that was a fucking big shitty deal, too. Oh, yeah. Well, it all is. <laughs> But she, like, was sticking her her toe in all sorts of pools, like, wanting to assist various tribes, not just her own, with their uplifting, you know, as it were. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So over the next five years, she assisted them in raising funds for legal defense, helped prepare documentation. And so she started learning more about international law and treaty law. Um. Mm-hmm. And treaty as in like the United States yeah. treaty with native yes. tribes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. and the ways that uh, they said we're not going to honor that part mm-hmm. of what we promised. Yeah, it's really neat. The U.S. government yeah. is, it's been really good and, and solid to Native yeah. Americans. It's really cool. Um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Closer to home, she founded East Oakland's Native American Youth Center where she served as a director. She found a building and called for volunteers to help paint and uh, draft educational programs to help youth learn about their heritage. Because mm. I think that's something that is even today enjoying a huge revival of, of Native people who have assimilated, as it were, into white America, learning about yep. who, where they come from. I actually saw a really yes. like lovely TikTok about a woman who was uh, indigenous and white, and she was doing a dance for Thanksgiving about um, simultaneously holding within her the colonizer and the colonized, and mm. find like finding out what that meant to her. And oh, it was beautiful. It made me want to cry. Um, that sounds gorgeous. In 1974, she and her husband finally fucking divorced. It, I think, took too long since he clearly was not supportive of her and her life goals. And she moved with her two daughters to Oakland and became a social worker at the time with the Urban Indian Resource Center, where she worked on programs conducting research on child abuse and neglect, foster care, and adoption of Native children. And I didn't realize this was something that happened. She recognized that most indigenous children who needed to be adopted were placed with families with absolutely no knowledge of native traditions so she worked on legislation um, to prevent children from being removed from their culture and they created a law which eventually passed as the indian child welfare act which made it illegal to place indigenous children in non-indigenous families that's incredible. Yeah. Actually, I will I will be forever sad um, about this, but they canceled a show that they premiered last year called Stumptown. Have you heard of it or seen I, it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, and some of the main characters are indigenous people, mm-hmm. and some of the main storylines in that show are about that, about kids who were placed um with white families never knowing that they were of native heritage my friend is a writer on that show he he's he's probably the person who wrote those plots because he's the person who told me about wilma Mankiller. tell him that i am so devastated that they canceled that show and also that i loved it i loved every little bit of it and uh that he's amazing 
after her divorce uh, in 1976, uh, her mom moved back to Oklahoma. So she decided to move with her daughters back to Oklahoma as well. And um, she built a small house near her mother's house in Mankiller Flats. Um, She was doing. What is Mankiller Flats? It's where they're from. Oh, shit. So there is like an area named. Okay, that's incredible. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm with it now. Um, After doing volunteer work for the Cherokee Nation, she was hired in 1977 to work on a program for young Cherokees to study environmental science. Um, And that same year, she started taking additional classes at Flaming Rainbow University in Stillwell, Oklahoma, and finally completed her Bachelor of Science degree in social sciences with an emphasis on Indian affairs. Aha. Yep. Um, She also enrolled in graduate courses in community development at the University of Arkansas. I guess she was doing them remotely because she was still in Oklahoma. Um, While continuing to work in the tribal offices as an economic stimulus coordinator... And so she worked on home health care, uh, indigenous child welfare protocols, language services, uh, senior citizens program, and a youth shelter. Like, she was... Holy shit. And everything. Let's keep in mind that she's still, like, 10 years away from becoming chief. Like, that's fucking crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> she's just, like, kind of accumulating all of the knowledge and accolades that she can possibly get. Mm-hmm. But she did, like, suffer some really big obstacles at this point in her life. In 1979, uh, she was in a really bad car accident. Um, One of her friends, one of her closest friends, was involved in that accident as well and died. Um, She suffered broken ribs, breaks in her left leg and ankle, and both her face and right leg were crushed. Oh, fuck. Initially, doctors that thought she wouldn't be able to walk... Um, but after 17 operations and plastic surgery to reconstruct her face, she was released from the hospital and was able to walk with crutches. 17? Surgeries. Mm-hmm. Ugh. While she was still in recovery from the accident, three months later, she started to notice like a loss of muscle coordination. Um, she was dropping things. She couldn't grip things very well. And her voice would get tired just after a short time speaking. Um, doctors initially thought that problems were related to her accident because it was close to it time-wise, but she, stroke of luck, I guess, was one day watching a telethon for muscular dystrophy and she thought her symptoms sounded so similar to what they were talking about on this telethon that she called the muscular dystrophy center, was referred to a specialist and was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis which is a form of muscular dystrophy, I guess. Um, Jesus. Yeah. So she went to the hospital, underwent more surgeries, and apparently uh, did a course of chemo, which I I, I don't know if it's like a helpful way to deal with that. I've never heard of that. Um, And then she went back to work in December. (laughs) Like... Oh, my God. Just like, okay, yeah, I went through this car accident. I had all these surgeries. I Uh figured out I have muscular dystrophy. And now I'm back at work. Hi. She said of that period in her life, quote, I thought a lot about what I wanted to do with my life during that time. The reality of how precious life is enabled me to begin projects I couldn't have otherwise tackled. Wow. Right? (laughs) I can't. I can't even imagine that. That is insane. 
Yeah. Like she was already on an uphill trajectory and then there's like a little plateau and then she's like, nope, gonna keep going. Um, Yeah, can't stop now. (laughs) Ultimately, she was energized with a new sense of purpose and soon found a project to funnel her drive and talent in a, a community in Bell, Oklahoma. It was a small village on the Cherokee reservation where most of the residents were poor and spoke only Cherokee. Um, most people were living in unsafe, rundown housing that didn't have running water. And she was a grant writer and got money from the federal government and organized a community self-help project where volunteers constructed an 18-mile-long water system and repaired all the unsafe housing. Whoa. And at that time, her efforts earned her national recognition, and she was named uh, Woman of the Year by Miss Magazine in 1987. While she was working on the Bell Project, she collaborated with a man named Charlie Soap, who worked in the Indian Housing Authority and helped supervise the venture. Um, And the success of the program led to its use as a model for other grant programs for her own and for other tribes, because they saw how successful it was for her. Um, All right. So while she was in the middle of this project... It was in 1981 that the current Cherokee tribal chief, Ross Swimmer, promoted her as first director of a department that she devised, which was uh, the Community Development Department of the Cherokee Nation. And over the next three years, that position enabled her, like put her in a position to raise millions of dollars for similar community development projects and programs like what she did in Bell. And um, he was so impressed by her skill and the results that she was achieving. uh, Swimmer asked her to be his running mate for the next tribal election in 1983. Oh, hell yeah. She was a Democrat and he was a Republican. (laughs) And I was like, I didn't realize you could do that. I mean, I obviously you can. At that time. (laughs) But that seems very progressive to me. And it was his third consecutive term bid for the role of principal chief. Um, They both had the goal of wanting the tribe to become more self-sufficient because he was a Republican. He felt the path was through developing tribal businesses, hotels, agricultural enterprises. And she, as a Democrat, wanted to focus on small rural communities, improving housing for people and health care for people. Um, Their differences on policy were not really a key problem in the election, but apparently her gender was. Oh, my God. She was no surprised by the amount of sexism that she faced because, as we previously mentioned, in traditional Cherokee society, families and clans were organized matrilineally. Right. And though women traditionally had not held titled positions in Cherokee government, There was like a woman's council, which wielded considerable influence and was responsible for training the chief. So it's really weird. It's like she stepped outside of what the traditional roles were and people were losing their minds. Um, She received death threats. Her tires were slashed. There was a billboard with her face on it that got burned. Um, Jesus, they went fucking nuts about it. Yeah. And uh, but Swimmer, her running mate, remained steadfast and they won re-election um, by a narrow margin, but they won. All right. Um, as deputy chief, one of her main duties was to preside over the tribal council, 
which was a 15 member governing body for the Cherokee Nation. Um, she, of course, kind of, you know, retrospectively, I say this kind of naively assumed that the sexism she faced on the campaign trail would kind of subside once she was officially elected. But that's not what happened. She didn't have very much support in the tribal council, like ever. It seems like half of her job was just an uphill battle. Some yeah. members of the council viewed her as a political enemy and others discounted her because she was a woman. She chose actively to avoid involvement in tribal legislation to minimize hostility to her election and was instead concentrating on areas of government that the council did not control. So she chose okay. to focus her efforts in areas where she could make more of a difference. Um, yeah, because they were just antagonizing. Yes. Uh, one of her first, like, focused issues was apparently on the full blood, mixed blood divide. Ooh. Cherokees with non-native ancestry. She is one of them. Right. Had assimilated into American culture at a higher rate, um, while full bloods maintained Cherokee language and culture. So historically, those groups had been at odds. I know we talked about this uh, when we talked about um, uh, the doctor how her family was very like, let's be like white people so that we can. Susan? Yes. Susan LaFleche? Thank you. Oh my God, my brain. Um, no, this is me every time and you always have to remind me. <laughs> but Three years of this, Deanna. I know. Um, but I, her, her father as chief wanted everybody to assimilate and behave yeah. as if they were white and lots of people disagreed. And so this is, you know, a later version of that, I believe. Yeah. So by the time Wilma was elected deputy chief, the mixed blood faction was focused on economic growth and favored the idea of non-natives being hired to run native businesses if they were more qualified to do so. But full blood oh. Cherokees believed that such modernization would compromise Cherokee identity. So it's 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 really the same exact sort of debate, but in a more modern lens. And it's still being had today. Yeah, of course. She supported a more middle-of-the-road approach, and she expanded the Cherokee Heritage Center and the Institute for Cherokee Literacy. She persuaded the tribal council to change the way that council members were elected. So mm. rather than at-large candidates, potential members came from newly created districts, which meant that urban areas with large populations no longer controlled the council, basically. You could have more of a okay. voice for everybody was her sort of idea. Very cool. And in 1985, Chief Swimmer resigned as principal chief because he was appointed as assistant secretary of the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs. So he got a job oh. with the U.S. federal government and so resigned as chief. So she okay. became the first female principal chief at that time of the Cherokee Nation and was sworn into office on December 5th, 1985. Um again lots of uphill battles and to appease her detractors on the tribal council she didn't attend council meetings and she stressed the separation between the executive and legislative branches so the tribal council is basically like the legislative branch and she wanted them to feel like they had their own power separate from her interesting so almost immediately press coverage on her made her an international celebrity and um, improved the perception, I guess, at the time of Native Americans in the United States. Huh. Yeah. I didn't realize that they, they had a negative 
reputation, but I, but I'm being naive. I understand that. Well, and like like you were talking about earlier, like with the Alcatraz occupation, and I mean there were a lot of little, um, or I guess not little, but like there were a lot of activist events. I guess we could call them just for ease, because there were so many different things happening, and and that had happened in the '60s and up up till then that I assume made a lot of like middle America and conservative white people kind of go Ooh, mm-hmm. because they just didn't get what was happening and mm-hmm. and sometimes it got violent and mm-hmm. I think that that was a time when you had not only um, Native American activism very being very overt in like the Alcatraz occupation and, and other events but like you had the Black Panthers that were rising and falling you had a lot of activism happening on behalf of underrepresented communities Mm -hmm. that were making people very nervous yeah and it's the same argument that trump's still trying to make today of like they're coming for suburbia and i'm the only one who can protect your cushy suburban life it's like yep exactly are we still doing this and we are she did an interview in people magazine um, in November of 1985, and she strove to show that Native cultural traditions of cooperation and respect for the environment made them excellent role models for the rest of society. She pointed out in her interview with Miss Magazine that Cherokee women had been historically valued members of their communities before mainstream society imposed patriarchy upon the tribe. Mm-hmm. She presented uh, critiques of the Reagan administration and their policies that were meant to diminish tribal self-determination or threatened tribal culture. And she built various relationships with uh, power brokers in that world. All right. Because she lacked favor with the tribal council, she also used her access with the press to educate Cherokee voters on the goals of her administration and her desire to improve housing and health services. But within five months of becoming chief, uh, her celebrity status resulted in her election that year as American Indian Woman of the Year. An honor bestowed what? by the Oklahoma Federation of Indian Women and her induction into the Oklahoma oh. Women's Hall of Fame. Okay. Uh-huh. And um, All right. she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of New England and received a citation for leadership from Harvard. Wow. Okay. It's amazing that you can accomplish these things after you've already accomplished the thing that you accomplished. mm -hmm. Weird, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So I mentioned kind of in passing her working with a man named Charlie Soap and Mm -hmm. didn't really bring it up. But here I am bringing it up again because (laughs) by 1986, her relationship with Charlie Soap changed from a professional one to a personal one. Leading, I was gonna ask. Leading to their engagement early in the year. She didn't want that to initiate any sort of call for her to step down um, because he also worked in government. And so they kept the relationship oh. private until they got married. Um, oh. But it still, of course, caused controversy, um, generating calls for Soap to resign from his position. And he did. Um effective at the end of January 1987, which of course then people criticized because uh, her opponents criticized because they saw that he like delayed his resignation so that he could get retirement benefits. 
Um, like, yeah, why? Oh, no. What a horrible thing. Um, Terrible. Wanting your benefits. Ugh. Weird. How Um, dare. Initially, she had such a negative experience from, like, her own government uh, that she was kind of thinking that she didn't want to run for re-election. But when her opponents tried to persuade her not to run, she was like, fuck you, no, I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And she had, of course, her husband's support. She persuaded voters that the tribe could cooperate with state and federal governments to negotiate favorable terms to improve their opportunities. And because her husband was a full-blooded Cherokee, he was instrumental in taking her message to that faction of full-blood Cherokees and diffusing the gender oh. issue. Oh. Because he spoke All right, with them. using his privilege. Yes, he did. And he spoke with them in Cherokee about the traditional place of women in Cherokee society and won them over. Okay. Um, focusing on budget cuts by the Reagan White House, she highlighted how reductions in funding for low-income housing, health and nutrition programs, and educational initiatives were impacting the Cherokee tribe. She recognized that economic development was a priority and should be a priority, but she stressed that business development had to be balanced by addressing social problems. Wow, what a fucking concept. What? But weeks before the election, she was hospitalized for her kidney disease. Her opponents argued she was medically unfit. Turnout was high for this uh, election. And even though she won 45% of the vote, tribal law required 50%. To avoid a runoff. So they had a runoff election and she won the runoff. Aha! (laughs) Um, When the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1988 passed, she was kind of cautious about participating, um, but acknowledged that other tribes had a right to participate, um, which had to do with casinos and gambling and stuff like that. She was concerned by research that connected gambling with crime. Um, and she didn't endorse gaming for the Cherokee Mm. Nation. She also rejected requests for the tribe to store nuclear waste for the U.S. government, given its potential harm to the environment, which I think was a very smart (laughs) choice. Yeah. It's amazing that the U.S. government was always asking and requiring Native people and their lands to host that waste. That could, you know, affect the population, but, you know native people didn't count or something i yeah in their mind Mm. um interesting eventually she changed her stance on uh gambling uh and bingo parlors became a major revenue source for the tribe bingo parlors yes that's adorable so she founded private industry council And brought government and private businesses together through that council to figure out ways to generate economic growth in northeastern Oklahoma. She established employment training opportunities and programs which offered financial and technical expertise to tribal members who wanted to start their own small business. She also backed the creation of a tribal electronic harness and cabling company, construction of a hydroelectric plant, and a horticultural operation. In the middle of her first term, she was invited to the White House to meet with President Reagan to discuss Native people's grievances with his administration. (laughs) Oh, like he was going to fucking listen. Okay. She was hoping that it was going to be a productive meeting. She was invited as one of three spokespeople for the 16 invited chiefs 
and was disappointed that Reagan discounted their issues and merely reiterated his pledge for self-determination. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I was born in a privileged position and I did it. Why can't you? Yeah, even though picking yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't even make sense. Let's just not talk about that. Let's not. She brushed off the meeting as a photo opportunity for the president, but the publicity of the event enhanced her public image as a result. Okay. Which is good. The most significant development in her first full term was the negotiation with the state of Oklahoma for tax sharing on businesses operating on Cherokee lands. So that allowed chiefs to collect state taxes and retain a portion of revenue for businesses on Cherokee land, which is a big deal. Oh, yeah, that's huge. Yeah. In 1990, her kidney disease got worse. One of her kidneys failed and she got a kidney transplant from her brother who donated a kidney to her and she returned to work within a few weeks. Of course she did. Of course she did. (laughs) (laughs) While she was in Boston, apparently recuperating from the transplant, she met with officials from Washington, D.C. and signed an agreement for the Cherokee Nation to participate in a project which allowed the tribe to self-govern and assume responsibility for the use of federal funds, which is pretty cool. Mm. This change in policy had come about because of allegations of corruption and mismanagement in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Hearings on the matter resulted in amendments to the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975, which allowed 10 tribes to participate in a pilot program spanning five years. They would receive block grants and they were allowed to tailor the use of the funds based on local needs. Hmm. Further amendments extended self-determination to the Indian Health Service. Wilma welcomed the initiative, which reinforced intergovernmental cooperation and increased uh, independence for Cherokee people. Her government built new health clinics, created a mobile eye care clinic, established ambulance services, and they also created early education and adult education programs. Like, she really got so much done and was recognized with uh, an honorary degree from Yale in 1990 and 1991. She received one from Dartmouth College. Jesus. So she was just like racked up all these honorary degrees like... (laughs) No big deal. Like, I'm already doing it. No big deal. I'm already doing it. In March of 1991, she announced her candidacy for the next election and shortly thereafter was invited to meet with other Native leaders at the White House with then-President George H.W. Bush. Bush's officials Mm. were different than Reagan's, actually, and were receptive to input from tribal leaders. And Wilma Mankiller hoped that it would usher in a new era of government-to-government relationship. Which is interesting. I find that interesting, too. I was like, huh, not what I would have thought. And in that election, she won 83% of the vote. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. That is a mandate. Well, when you're doing that many amazing things and, and it's, like, obvious what you're doing and how you're helping your people, I I don't know. I don't see why, I don't see why anyone would be like, nah, Mm -hmm. nah. Yeah. Like, clearly it was too it was too much to ignore. Um, in her second elected term, she focused on issues of identity a lot. Mm. She worked with registrars and staff members to document groups which claimed Cherokee heritage and compiled a list of 269 associations throughout the country. And there was the passage of the Indian Arts and Crafts Act of 1990, 
which provided both civil and criminal penalties for non-native artists who promoted their work as Indian art. Oh. And the tribe had the ability to certify artisans who couldn't prove their ancestry. So they were able to have more of a say in who got to make art and profit off of their culture. That is super interesting. I I wonder how that um, is still going, you know, like because I feel like that could kind of backfire in some ways. Yeah. Especially if you are someone like Wilma, who is who is half Cherokee and half white. Like if you're if you have somebody at the time, maybe maybe after her time who is in charge and doesn't think that that is enough. Mm hmm. That could be a little dicey. Yeah. In 1992, she endorsed Bill Clinton for president, but didn't donate any money to his campaign, which I thought was interesting. She participated in his transition team for the presidency. Whoa. I did not know that. No. Thanks to her access to such high level officials in the U.S. government, she became the most influential native leader in the country, basically. Jeez. Her autobiography was published in 1993. Um, It's called Man Killer, A Chief and Her People. And it became a national bestseller. And Gloria Steinem said in a review that, quote, as one woman's journey, Mankiller opens the heart. As the history of a people, it informs the mind. Together, it teaches us that as long as people like Wilma Mankiller carry the flame within them, centuries of ignorance and genocide can't extinguish the human spirit. And she and Gloria Steinem became good friends. And Steinem later married her partner in a ceremony at Mankiller Flats. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was like such an unexpected twist. Of Just all of a that. little That's tiny. Really lovely. Uh-huh. She received an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Drury College. <laughs> <laughs> and uh... she was honored with the American Association of University Women's Achievement Award. And in October was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She had been inducted into the Oklahoma Women's Hall of Fame, but then the national one. Um, Right. In the same year, this is 1994, uh, she was invited by Bill Clinton to moderate the Nation to Nation Summit, in which leaders of all 545 federally recognized tribes in the United States were assembled to discuss a variety of topics. She was the moderator. 545 tribal leaders. Oh, my God. But the (laughs) summit provided a forum for tribal leaders and government officials to resolve issues concerning jurisdiction, law, resources, and religious freedom. As a result, uh, the Office of Indian Justice was established by the Department of Justice in the U.S. government. Oh, I wonder if it still exists. Mm -hmm. In 1995, Wilma Mankiller was diagnosed with lymphoma and chose not to run again for chief. Um, largely due to her health problems. Because of her chemotherapy, she had to forego the immunosuppressive drugs she had been taking since her kidney transplant. And so the election that happened after her, there was a man named George Bearpaw who was disqualified as a candidate. And so Joe Bird succeeded her as principal chief. And I didn't realize that Joe Bird succeeded her because... I'm friends with Joe Bird's daughter. Oh, that's your connection. (laughs) Yes. And I knew that he was a chief 
But I didn't know that he came right after Wilma Mankiller. And apparently they did not get along or like each other. So it's kind of interesting to read about (laughs) this. Apparently, George Bearpaw was disqualified based on an expunged conviction of assault. Hmm. So it was expunged, but it was, you know, still happened. Um, And so you still assaulted somebody. (laughs) She refused to attend Joe Bird's inauguration on the grounds that he was not actually elected. (laughs) Like, I don't know. She felt that he wasn't supposed to be chief. And she feared that Bird would fire the staff she hired. So she authorized severance packages for her workers in her final days of office. A lawsuit was filed by the new chief on behalf of the Cherokee Nation against Mankiller, alleging embezzlement of tribal funds. Jesus, why? Of $300,000 paid out to tribal officials and department heads who left at the end of her term. I think it has to do with the severance packages. Oh, my God. Cherokee Cherokee Nation v. Mankiller was withdrawn by a vote of the tribal council. Which is kind of interesting, considering they didn't support her initially. Mm-hmm. Reflecting on her chieftainship, Mankiller said, quote, We've had daunting problems in many critical areas, but I believe in the old Cherokee injunction to be of good mind. Today, it's called positive thinking. When she left office, the population of the Cherokee Nation had increased from 68,000 to 170,000 citizens. Wow. Um, the tribe was generating annual revenues of approximately $25 million from a variety of sources, including factories, retail stores, restaurants, and bingo operations. Um, she had a- secured federal assistance of $125 million annually to assist with education, health, housing, and employment. And Amazing. she obtained the tribe's grant for self-governance and federal oversight of tribal funds was minimized under her tenure. Damn, she did a um, lot. <laughs> Yeah. And apparently Joe Byrd's administration was embroiled in a constitutional crisis, which he blamed on her, stating that her failure to attend his inauguration and lack of mentoring divided the tribe and left him without experienced advisors. And I have no idea how to feel about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, not knowing enough about that whole how but also, works, it seems but... like she came into a divided government as well. And yeah, it's super easy to just blame other people when you don't, when you're not able to fucking do it. But so, his supporters also alleged that she was behind many attempts to remove him from office. So it, it was mm. interesting how contentious it was. She said that was untrue, um, and she remained basically silent on his administration. Until he accused her of heading a conspiracy um, and the embezzlement and stuff. So she went to Washington with her predecessor to ask that the federal authorities allow the tribe to sort out their own problems. Oh. Even though there were uh, Oklahoma senators and um, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior said that they wanted presidential action. So, yeah, I think that that whole thing is complicated and messy and interesting especially given my personal connection to <laughs> Joe Bird, I like really don't know how to feel. It's interesting. I mean, I think it's it is interesting on one hand that she clearly was or maybe not clearly, but didn't um didn't 
have a lot of maybe positive things to say about how he was trying to run things, but also still wanted the tribe to be responsible for dealing with it. Yeah, that's you know, true. She wanted she wanted the Cherokee Nation to be responsible for managing that situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that says a lot about her faith in the nation and in the politics and, and governance of true uh, of what was going on even if she didn't like him and his and how he was running shit true beyond that in 96 she became a visiting professor at dartmouth where she taught at the in the native american studies program she got more fucking awards (laughs) um she went on a lecture tour she spoke on healthcare, tribal sovereignty women's rights and cancer awareness She spoke uh, at various civic organizations, tribal gatherings, universities, women's groups, another honorary degree from Smith College. And in (laughs) 1998, uh, President Clinton awarded Wilma Mankiller the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor in the United States. Um, Shortly after that, she had a second kidney failure and received a second transplant from her niece, As previously, she almost immediately returned to work, resuming her lecture tours and simultaneously working on four books. What? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my God. In 1999, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Wilma, what the fuck? And underwent a double lumpectomy followed by radiation. And that same year, the Reader's Companion to U.S. Women's History, which she co-edited, was published. Like, I cannot believe this woman had lymphoma, breast cancer, kidney disease, and, like, muscular dystrophy. And was still doing all this shit. Nothing is going to keep me the fuck down. Nothing. (laughs) Um, In March of 2010, uh, her husband announced that she was terminally ill with pancreatic cancer. Oh. Well, and oh my God. she she passed away on April 6th, 2010, from cancer at her home oh. in rural Oklahoma. Uh, about 1,200 people attended her memorial service at the wow. Cherokee National Cultural Grounds. Um, and it was attended by many dignitaries, including sitting Cherokee Chief Chad Smith, Oklahoma Governor Brad Henry, U.S. Congressman Dan Boren, and Gloria Steinem, of course. Um, wow. The ceremony included statements from Bill and Hillary Clinton, as well as President Barack Obama. And she was buried in her family cemetery and a few days later was honored with a congressional resolution from the U.S. House of Representatives and was posthumously presented with the Drum Award for Lifetime Achievement by the Five Civilized Tribes. Wow. A tireless, tenacious woman. Who I was persevered say in spite of like three cancers, kidney oh disease, that awful car accident. She had her whole face fucking reconstructed. I, what am I, I doing with my life? Can't what am I doing? It. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what am I doing with? Well, you know, uh, and there is still so so much work to be done, but I I think the fact that she was tireless is. Just it, she saw so clearly all of the issues that needed um, dealing with, and clearly other people weren't dealing with them really, or 
or couldn't see the path to dealing with them. And I think a lot of, you know, not to not to generalize, but I think a lot of male politicians get mired in the in the bullshit of like, oh, well, nobody helped you with my transition. So like I can't do my job. And she probably was silent on his administration because she was like, come on, dude. Nobody what, wanted like, me in my position. Yeah. I look at all the shit of... I did. Mm-hmm. And but. you can do it too. You like we all need to stop making ex- excuses for this kind of thing because the work needs to be done. Period. Mm-hmm. And she clearly saw herself as one of the only people willing and capable to do it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Otherwise, I, you know, why else would you leave the hospital a week after getting? or however many weeks after getting your surgeries and dealing with chemo and cancer. And like, if you can tell that people aren't going to step up to do it, I can completely understand wanting to get out of that situation and go back to work because time is wasting and things are on the verge of falling apart. So, oh man, as much as I'm like, I could never be like that, I am in awe of her for managing to change and do so much. Um, you know, regardless of, uh, of any foibles, it certainly was a life well lived. Yeah, you cannot and say that she, there is... Yeah, you can't deny that the first female chief, principal chief of the Cherokee Nation in modern history... She accomplished so much. She <laughs> yeah. did so many things for her people. And I'm just, yeah, in awe is the perfect way to put it. Yeah, that was, yeah, it's amazing. It's, I'm so glad you did her because I looked at her very, very brief bio. I knew none of, of what you just told me, but like I was, I was torn between her and the person that I'm going to do next week. And um, and I, obviously I didn't end up choosing her. So I'm really glad you did just because I think it, it's important to talk about and important to talk about her right now, especially given all of our political turmoil and crazy mm-hmm. shit. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's important to remember legacies like hers that really changed a lot of things and created a lot of important programs and, um institutions so thank you you're welcome that was awesome are you a good witch or a bad bitch let us know by becoming a patron on on our our patreon Patreon. (laughs) oh no patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh come along with doing our podcast and the more patrons we get hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons yes so if you are interested in something like that please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you also when you become a patron you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air how exciting is that very exciting yeah yeah you can find us at patreon.com slash gwbb podcast i realized i forgot to mention 
if you want to go listen to a podcast about Dolly Parton that is very mm. in-depth, it's called yeah. Dolly Parton's America. It is a nine-part podcast. And um, the guy who created the podcast actually was able to interview her. So did far better of a job than I ever would have been able to do. <laughs> and uh, you should go listen to it if you want to learn more about Dolly Parton. Will you send me the link so we can put it in the show notes? Yeah. Okay. Um, Thank you. What are you excited about this week? Oh, man. Um, I'm excited about TV. <laughs> when is that ever going to change? I have been really loving The Mandalorian. I feel uh, like people... Have you watched any? Yes, I've watched okay, okay. it all. Okay. I feel like I've seen a lot of people going, oh, I don't like how slow it feels and how it doesn't feel like he's doing anything. And I'm like, I entirely disagree. Like, this is perfect second act um, plotting. Like, it's the first The first season was the like inciting incident right like him getting his mission and now he is going through the motions of trying to achieve his mission and right now he's in the space where he's like meeting some really interesting people that I know are going to come back and learning about the world and I won't spoil anything but it's also just like so beautiful the the way that they shoot it is oh yeah miraculous it's so so good and I know there's only a couple of people who listen to this who probably give any crap about like the technical aspects of Hollywood but the way they shoot this show is completely unlike anything you've ever seen and that's because instead of using a green screen they film on like a virtual set and Mm -hmm. so the set is all like virtually made in software and then projected onto these screens that surround the set and so you get this beautiful light and you don't have to try and figure out how to light the actors so that they're not reflecting green from the green screen and like mm-hmm. all this shit so and it's, they use a ton know. of practical effects which is yeah really refreshing and magical yeah in the time it's, of cgi yes agreed it's just really cool and uh yeah that's that's really what i'm excited about is just that we live in a time where i can watch a show like that <laughs> it's yes. pretty sweet i agree Follow us on social media. You can leave comments on things. We're on almost all social media platforms at GWBB Podcast. You can send us an email, gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. If you feel so inclined to give us a coffee on our Ko-Fi or become a patron on our Patreon, that we still would like for you to donate to Fair Fight, um, you can do so. Everything is at GWBB Podcast. But again, Fair Fight more important. And yep. until we'll January links for that until January. <laughs> and um, yeah, thanks again for listening. We appreciate everybody and um, you make our hearts feel full. Yes, you do. Thank you guys. And peace out, witches. Bye. Bye. for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. 
Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.